good issue for all women. Hello there, you smasher, and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Mickey here, and this week I had the pleasure of nattering with performance poet Len Penny. I first started following Len on the social media, to be precise, what was then Twitter, where she's got a big following, although not as big as her TikTok audience, where she's a bona fide star, but I, I just can't. I just can't. Anyway, I started following her for her Scots Word of the Day videos, which remain a delight and an education. Big recommend. And so I was chuffed to hear she had a book coming out. Her debut poetry collection, Poems, is out on February the 22nd, which, if you're listening to this fresh out of the box, is this coming Thursday. I am definitely still butchering that title, by the way, even though Len kindly explained it's Poe like Edgar Allan and Young like that was tasty. My apologies to all our Scottish listeners. Luckily, Len's very good at saying it, obviously. Len's poems cover a lot of ground, from depression and mental health to misogyny and abusive relationships. If that all sounds bleak, well, the topics are, but Len's honesty, rawness, humour and playfulness with language make the poetry anything but. As you're about to hear for yourself. Len, hello. Hi, how's it going? I'm all right, thanks. But, you know, we don't need to talk about me because as we're talking on Thursday the 15th of February, your debut poetry collection, Poems, launches tonight at the tonight? National Library of Scotland. How are you feeling? I'm so nervous. I'm really, I'm, I'm so excited, but I'm so nervous. I just, I, I can't wait for it to start. So the adrenaline turns into like useful energy instead of just vibrating me with just excitedness and awkwardness. Do you know how it's going to go? Do you know what sort of format it is? So I'm I'm on with Susie Briggs, who's who's the new Scott Screever. And so I know I'm in very capable, very professional hands. So she's going to guide us through a bunch of different topics. And hopefully I'll manage to give some semi-sensible answers. Do you think Susie's worried that you're going to be after a job, though? No, that's the thing, <laughs> is I do not have the, the requisite level of professionalism and uh, <laughs> and consistency to be the screamer. So I'm perfectly happy just being a screamer and I'll leave being the screamer to, to someone like Susie who's capable of it. Before we chat more about poems, and for the listeners, I apologise. I'm hoping that Len's going to say it at some point, but you all know what my accent is. It's this. I first started following you on what was then Twitter for your excellent Scots Word of the Day content. Please, can I have a Scots Word of the Day? So I'm just choosing it now, actually. I haven't chosen it yet for today. I'm thinking of going for something about being excited. I did that yesterday, so... I'm trying to switch up so I'm not repeating it, but consistently I have just been excited about things because so much has been happening with the book that I feel like I'm repeating myself by saying, hey guys, this means excitement, this means excited, this means to be excited, this is a phrase which means to be buzzing. So I'm still in the process of choosing it, but um, it's been so long. Like I'm, I'm really struggling to find different ways of articulating the same concepts because I like to keep it relevant to how I'm feeling at the time. Mm-hmm. So recently, with everything that's been happening with the book, that's been excitement and nervousness and, and all these these wonderful emotions that, that are full of energy. I think movement verbs are ones I use the most. So like things like weak or bringe. But I mean, people always ask me in interviews, like, what's your favourite Scots word? Which is a difficult question for me to answer because, you know, if I asked you what your favourite English word was, I think it's it's difficult for, for people because they don't tend to think about language in terms of prioritizing it and, and having a, a preference for words they just fit the context but one of the the scots words that i really like the most is scliff 
which is a pretty nondescript word, which means to like thinly slice something. And you might look at that word and think, well, it's not evocative. It's not, you know, particularly spicy. It's not a particularly interesting word. But for me, Scots is so intrinsically linked to memory and to people. And so for me, the word scliff conjures up this like very, very fundamental early childhood memory of sitting on my papa's knee as he was scliffing an apple for me. So, you know, just that that feeling of movement, the sort of embodiment of language as it relates to emotion, because that's an act of love, it's an act of care. You're not perfectly capable of eating an apple, you know, it's, it's something that you do for someone because, you know, you love them. So for me, that word is just so intrinsically linked to love that it's my favourite. That's really lovely. And a huge part and heart of your poetry is your use of the Scots language. And it is clearly really important to you. I feel like you've already started to answer this question. But why is it important to you? I think because it means so many things to me. For me, Scots is family, it's home, it's place, it's it's identity, it's emotion. It's My formative years were very much shaped with this kind of bilingual Scots-English upbringing. So for me, I couldn't write poetry without using Scots because it feels so natural to me and it feels so much a part of myself that to, to take it out and to remove it would have been kind of disingenuous. I'm always quite conscious of the fact that there's not a lot of Scots speakers out with Scotland and the majority of my audience is from out with Scotland so I've tried to make the Scots in, in Boyums in the book as accessible as possible so that people can just pick it up and if they've never come across Scots in their life they can access it in a way that feels not too challenging and not too much of a stretch. For me writing Scots is, is so much more emotive and evocative and and there's a real kind of when I perform there's a real kind of embodiment whenever I I use Scots because it feels so much more like the oral posture the sounds that exist in Scots and not English that sort of thing for me it kind of evokes this real poeticness and I I think you know it's it's drawn on kind of a a rich literary history there's so many Scots language poets Susie Hobbs Ockerty later on absolutely stunning writer in Scots and you know it's it's such a pleasure and a privilege to be able to to meet some of these people you know because I think people might think of Scots poets as being Burns and, and his contemporaries and like long past people who are no longer with us but the modern contemporary Scots writers that I'm getting to meet and getting to talk to is amazing I'm such a fan girl every time I meet them like hi how's it going <laughs> I love the joy. The joy is so contagious. And it's also, amazing. I think I, I saw in an interview that you mentioned that the use of Scots is getting rarer and there's a class aspect there. And I love that you're bringing that to the fore. When you start to study linguistics, every structure becomes exposed and every structure becomes a point of analysis. You know, there, unfortunately, there's so many prejudices that intersect when it comes to talking about language. And I'm always very careful to identify and understand where those prejudices are and where they show themselves. And with Scots, a lot of the time that will be class. But you also get a racialized aspect when it comes to Scots because some of my friends are Scots speakers and have been Scots speakers since the day they were born. You know, they're third, fourth, fifth generation Scots speakers just because of the color of their skin or, you know, their surname or the fact that their parents have moved here, their grandparents have moved here. They're not seen as being Scots speakers. They're seen as having adopted or affected Scots. Mm. And I'm always very, very conscious of the fact that Scots is for everyone. You know, it's a learnable, teachable language, but it's also a language that belongs to everyone. Nobody ever comes into my comment section and tells me that I'm not someone who, to whom Scots belongs. 
even though, you know, my dad's not from Scotland. But they would just as easily go into the comment section of someone who's a person of colour living in Scotland and tell them that they shouldn't use those words or they don't belong to Scotland or that Scotland doesn't belong to them. And for me, I think that's that's just another intersection of prejudice. So yeah, class is a massive, you know, stigmatised point when it comes to Scots, but also things like race and then gender as well. Because Scots speakers who are women are masculinised. You know, I've had people analyse my poetry and say that the you know the post use of the Scots language uh, masculinises her and 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 is is harsh and guttural and and angry. And I'm thinking this is a this is a piece about love. Did they read this is a piece the about love? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's it's these preconceived notions that I think are fascinating. But when it comes to prejudice, I think it's something that you really have to to push back on and examine. Your audience is huge and it's international, and you're sharing yeah. this. And as someone who isn't a Scots speaker. I have an ex who's Scottish, so, you know, I say you fucking dancer quite a lot, which I really like. That's <laughs> that's stuck with me. Thankfully, the only thing I took from that relationship. But reading your book, I kind of, I've got to admit, I immediately went to the back to see if there was a glossary. But then the more I got into it, the less I needed to check what was exact meaning of that word, because it's all there in the context, in the poetry. I deliberately didn't put a glossary in because, and I'm sorry if that, if that, it makes it inaccessible to people who are more inaccessible. But for me, and I, I, I've studied different languages, and, and whenever there was a glossary, it took me out of the book. Mm-hmm. I would go from the poem to the glossary to the poem to the glossary, and then I wouldn't read the poem in its entirety, or I would I would get to a word and it would it would stop me, and it would stop me in the flow. So what I want to do is create poetry where you get the gist of it, even if you're not a Scottish speaker, but when you find a word that you like, I want to take you to an external source. I want to take you to a dictionary. I want to take you to somewhere else where you will begin that journey, you know, and, and where you can continue engaging with the language. So for me, that'll be the DSL because that's a really accessible, free, amazing resource. It's been it's been collated from from texts and things that are just natural scots. So it's not something that's, you know, a museum dictionary where it's it's an antiquated thing. You know, there's examples been put in all the time from the two thousands. So if I don't know a word when I'm reading a Scots piece, I'll make a wee note, I'll go to the DSL, I'll type it in and they've got all the spellings, they've got all the pronunciations, they've got all the context, they've got all the etymologies and then I just spend about two or three hours going down the rabbit hole. So I want people to go down the rabbit hole with me. I want the book to be jumping off point for people. I think also your use of Scots, because your poetry is so personal, which might, I'm sorry, sound like a really stupid thing to say to a poet because no, most poetry is very, very personal. But the poems in Poems covers a lot of ground and emotions, depression, misogyny, domestic abuse, hashtag not all men, I'd add hashtag but pretty much always a man. It's all very, very personal. So first of all, I want to say I'm really sorry that you've been through that. It fucking sucks. Thank you. Thank you for writing about it because I think a lot of women will relate and feel comforted and feel not alone which is such a such a big deal when you've been through that kind of thing I was chatting to someone who'd written about a similar sort of theme and she said I hate it when someone asks me if it's catharsis I hadn't asked her that but she said because it's not it's just revisiting trauma and so for her delving back into it was something she had to do but it wasn't like and then it was all done and dusted Mm -hmm. so I think it takes courage to revisit that kind of experience and make it art is there a sense of you taking back ownership of those experiences? I think for me, when it comes to catharsis, I think I think we as a society look at catharsis as a one-time thing. You know, it's a release and then that's it. You've released it, you've healed, you're done. For me, catharsis is very much an ongoing process. So, you know, writing it, 
felt cathartic. I got a lot out, but it didn't help. Like it, it, it wasn't therapy. You know, I'm very, very conscious to not say writing is my therapy because my therapy is my therapy. <laughs> you know, it's in therapy, crying and unpacking and unpicking and, and analyzing and, and going over. That's the therapy. You know, the medication was a therapy. <laughs> you know, like it, the, the poetry was just having something to do. It was just a task. You know, my, my brain, when it's not busy, it, it does all sorts of terrible, terrible things. Oh, hello. Yes, that's relatable too. <laughs> It's like crocheting, it's like knitting, it's like playing video games, it's like reading a book, it's like any of these things that you can do to take yourself out of that moment of crisis. For me, that's what I did. And, and I'm also very careful to never say that, you know, I write my best poetry when I'm sad, or I can only write poetry when I'm sad. That's awful. And it precludes people from healing and from getting the help. You can write just as well healthy as you can unhealthy, but you might stick around and write more if you're healthy. So. I always encourage people, one, not to rely on art as a as a source of healing because it's not. It's a great tool, but it's not the entire toolkit. Mm-hmm. And also, don't intrinsically link your suffering with your art because you can get healthy, you can get better, you can heal and still produce art. You know, I'm, I'm a lot better than I was when I wrote the book. I'm still going to write good poetry. You know, I mean, I, I'm very, very conscious to tell people... Because it's like the suffering poet, you know, oh, it's, yeah. it's like yeah. the suffering artist. You have to be on the brink of despair and destruction in order to write your best work. No, get healthy, get happy, surround yourself with people that you love and you'll still be great. You're not great because of your suffering. You're great in spite of it. I've got to say, on the back of that, though, it did still make me laugh a lot. <laughs> not necessarily <Good>. the content, <laughs> but you were a very funny woman and that comes across even with these painful topics. I try really hard. Well, is it, it works. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> I try so hard to make everyone do that. <laughs> All right, Mickey here with an advert for Better Help Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Why, it? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say... I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution, in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up, and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. 
With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. In the acknowledgements of poems, you say, this feels like I'm writing a will, which I guess is accurate in some ways. I am not the same person as I was when I started writing poems. How did it change you? I think I changed while I was writing it. I don't think writing it changed me. When I first started writing poems, I wrote the first poem in the collection, Honey, when I just got out of the relationship and when I was at rock bottom. And I wrote it, and, and you can tell. I mean, the first piece, is no one likes it. Everybody hates honey. My dad hates honey. He hates it. He says, how can you not change the ending? How can you not make it happy? And I says, well, that's how I was feeling. But for me, that's how I was, genuinely how I was. I was depressed. I saw no hope. I saw nothing other than how I was at that particular moment. And that reflects it. And then if you look at other pieces, you know, things like narratives, things like the library, where I'm, where I'm working through it and seeing that kind of hope and seeing that escape. I didn't write the book and and through it I'd be like, oh my God, I know myself so much better. No, I was going to intensive therapy <laughs> and trying really hard and dating and finding love and losing love and losing people and finding people and completing my degree and doing all these extracurricular activities out with the book. So the book didn't change me. I changed me. The book just happened in the middle of it. Maybe the resounding message for me from reading all the poems and I guess for a poetry book because I was interviewing you I did it in quite an odd way and I read it all in in very intense sittings which are you okay (laughs) are you okay (laughs) but the thing I took away from it was I'm still standing that seems to be like the message I'm still here and I'm gonna stay here even when it's hard yeah I think showing up is half the battle it really is. I do whether you know it's like when you go for a workout and you don't feel like it. I say that having never worked out properly, but you go for a workout, <laughs> you do it. You do a crap workout. You know you're you're not feeling your best. You still did it. Yeah. You know, like in my mind, the time's gonna pass either way. So you might as well fill it with things that make you happy and make you healthier and make you feel good. So you know, for me, showing up is such a difficult thing because. With suicidal ideation, your brain just goes, I know what affects all these problems. Mm-hmm. I've got an easy way out. You know, you want it, you want it. And it's just that wee voice in your head that's constantly saying, you shouldn't be here. You don't deserve to be here. Yep. You're giving the world the gift. You're treating the people around you kindly by leaving. Because you feel yourself to be a toxic presence. You feel yourself to be something that's poisonous and detrimental to the safety, the health and the happiness of those around you. When you start to unpack that and you think, I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad. I'm not great. I'm not perfect, but I'm not so bad that my absence would be better than my presence. I think you start to view showing up as just enough. It's enough. You don't have to you don't have to eat all the cake and be the life and soul of the party, but you showed up. That kind of stuff, I'm gonna be honest with you, Len, that's the kind of stuff we don't tell anyone apart from in that therapy room, right? But you yeah. put it out there in the book and on the internet. Yeah. I was a bit surprised by that, even though I've read some of your or heard some of your poems that cover the darker stuff. That does seem really dark. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'm just what I say. I'm, I'm glad you're still here. Keep staying here. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, in practice for your big night tonight, 
Would you please read us one of your poems from Poems? Yes. Not honey, though. Not okay. Right. No one. No. Everyone hates honey. So this is not all men to to all two men. Just <laughs> the funniest title. <laughs> it's like fast, fast and furious too. Too fast and furious. <laughs> yeah. Won't someone please think of the good men out there who would never hurt women and would never dare to do anything other than treat them like queens? He's such a wee saint that it's etched in his jeans. And yet women, those bitches, just want to be mates and our good saintly prince won't get asked out on dates so he sits and he nurses the wrath that he's feeling and thinks not on what about him's unappealing. He deserves a text back. He's entitled to chances at sex and relationship, love and romance as if only the women had much better taste. <laughs> they would all just pick him and they would never waste their time on the men who would make them so sad. Because it's so bloody easy to know which guy's bad. So ladies, when hurt by abuse, cheats and lies, spare a thought for the real victims. All the nice guys. <laughs> that one did not go down well on the end. Oh really? <laughs> Weirdly enough, mm, the nice guys did not act very nicely. <laughs> the phrase friend zone for me is one of the most damaging. So many of my friends are guys. I don't view their friendship as a consolation prize. I don't view their friendship as, as a second place or, you know, even if I've had romantic feelings towards someone, they've turned me down and we've been friends. It's the relationship that I cherish, not the relationship that I resent as a sort of barrier to not getting what I want from them. Like it's it's absolutely it's such a weird way to look at women as kind of anything other than sex is just subpar. Yeah. And this whole idea that, that men and women can't be friends. I don't get it. It's, it's just bullshit, isn't it? It's just bullshit. Len, thank you. Poems is published by Canongate on February the 22nd. Where can people follow you on the socials to keep an eye on where you'll be on the Poems tour and also to keep their Scots language glossary up to date? So I'm on Twitter or X now. At Lenny Soros. I'm on Instagram as Miss Ponypenny. I'm on TikTok as Miss Ponypenny. And that's about it. Now, you're all over the country, and I don't wish to be London centric, certainly not when I'm speaking to somebody Scottish and, you know, northerner myself. But your London Waterstones appearance is with Lem Sisse. So that's incredible. I'm so excited. I've been such a fan of Lem's work. And I just like the fact that it'll be Lem and Len. Because I. <laughs> It's a partnership that I hope is going to, you know, bear fruit and let you go on and write poems together. It's going to be beautiful. I'm very excited. Me too. Len, thank you so, so much for your time and have a blast tonight. Thank you so much. It was so wonderful speaking to you. Standard Issue for All Women.